Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 15. We're wrapping up. We're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Next week will be our last week. Um, You can turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to go through verses 21 through 47. Uh, But because of the length of it, I'm going to work through it. Uh, Normally I read through the passage and pray, but I'm going to read through a different passage, uh, sort of as an introduction. So if you found your place in Mark 15 and you're courageous and you want to move places or you're really good with your sword, uh, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read that as our text for today. But let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers uh, just here at Valley Center. And, and Lord, we... Uh, we look to you for wisdom, we look to you for strength and encouragement and hope. And Father, as we look at the crucifixion of Christ today, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would bring this story alive to us. Uh, it's a familiar story, and the familiar stories become dangerous stories because we grow sort of apathetic and just we know them, and so they lose their impact. And so we ask that you would guard us from that today. Lord, we ask that this story would uh, become as real as it can possibly be for us. May we uh, see the story in our imagination. May we see the excruciating pain that Christ went through on the cross. May we learn from this account. Um, We pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to grow closer to you. We thank you. for the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he went to the cross on our behalf, that he stood in our place, and that your wrath was poured out upon him as our substitute. This is what was due us. We thank you that salvation is not earned. It's not anything we can earn. We thank you that this is by grace alone, that it's a gift to us received through faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this uh, with greater clarity today. May we understand grace. May we live in grace. May we walk by grace. May we be agents of your grace to a world around us that is lost and dying. And, and quite frankly, they're, scared, they're afraid and worried and not certain about life after death. And so we hold the keys that you have revealed to us through your word. And so we pray that you would help us in this dark world to be a light for you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's it's, it's a short, simple verse, but uh, I think it's critical to read this as we enter this text this uh, this verse also, I think, is critical in our navigating the world around us today. And the verse reads, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So, so right there, just the gospel account is that Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. Uh, it was an exchange. He did it in our place. To the world, this is foolishness. And um, not in naiveness, but in my, in my wanting to, um, oh, 
give the benefit of the doubt, I think is the word, to to the politician, to those that are over us. Um, In large part, there are exceptions, of course, but in large part, the authorities that have been placed over us don't know Christ as Savior. And so understanding the significance of the cross, understanding why it's so important for us to, to gather corporately uh, to, to worship with one another, it doesn't make sense to them because it can't make sense to them. The cross is foolishness to them. And today we're looking at the story of the cross. And for those of us who know Christ, we're told in Corinthians one eighteen, but to us who are being saved, I love that it's in the present tense, it is the power of God. We, this isn't just some story about some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago being uh, crucified, receiving capital punishment. This is the story of, of our Messiah, our Lord, who gave his life in exchange for ours so that we might have life. Why we don't have to fear the, the coronavirus. This week in my study, I I stumbled across a, a, you know, some church. Skip Heitzig's church was doing a, a, their study over this time. And the, the series is called Shelter in Grace. And I'm like, oh, that's really good. Um, we don't have to fear the coronavirus. Like, we're all going to die. We're, we're all going to die. Could be the coronavirus. Could be a heart attack. Could be a car accident. Could be a plane falls out of the sky. Could be, like, I, I, it, I could go on all day. Could go on all day. Um, but the reality is is that Christ died for us and we weren't created to die and there's life beyond this life in him and so because of that we know we don't have to fear death for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God and Father we do thank you for this truth and we ask that as we navigate this powerful story of the cross that you would help us to understand why this, this story is so important to us. Help us, Lord, to cast our fears upon you, to cast our worries, to cast our frustrations. Lord, we ask that you would give us hope in this time when hope seems to have slipped away from so many people in our culture. <coughs> we love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so back to Mark, verse 21. Chapter 15, verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, and Rufus to bear his cross. So we, we find ourselves in the story going back, I don't know how many weeks ago it was, but we found ourselves at Gethsemane, and they're praying, and they're falling asleep, and, and Judas shows up with the band of agents to take Jesus into custody. And they take him into custody. It's probably one in the morning. And they haul him to the compound of the high priest. And this pseudo trial takes place in the middle of the night from one in the morning till, say, I don't know, three or four in the morning. They had a whole band of people to testify against Jesus to come up with stuff. And Mark writes, like, nothing that they said, it just didn't even make sense. People were saying he's going to tear down the temple. The, the temple during Jesus' time, it's Herod's second temple. It took them, at the time of Jesus' life, they'd been building it for 46 years. I don't think it was even complete at that time. It's massive. It's, it's the remnant that we have today that if you find yourself in Jerusalem and you go to the temple, 
we have the remnant of the second temple. It's, it's massive. Um, and Jesus, they're saying Jesus is going to tear down this temple and he's going to rebuild it in three days. And as they make all these accusations, the high priest is just furious. He's like, this is ridiculous. There's nothing is being said that is going to allow us to bring this to Pilate to get charges. This is a holiday weekend. It's Friday. Well, it's whatever day it was. But it's, you know, when I say Friday, it's how we view Fridays, you know, the weekend. It's a holiday weekend, and, and we got to get him before Pilate so that we can get him executed and just have our lovely holiday weekend celebrating the Passover when God delivered us. You know, the, the irony of their hypocrisy is thick, you know. It's, and so as they finally, the, the high priest gets so frustrated with Jesus, he interrupts everything, and he says, listen, Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, under oath, are you the Messiah? These are Gunnar's words. He said it differently. But effectively what he said is, before God, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, I am. And at that moment, the high priest tears his clothes. He says, we don't even need any testimony. You all heard it, right? He just, this is blasphemy. And so under Jewish law, according to his claiming to be God, that was worthy of, the capital, of capital punishment. And so they wait till the sun comes up. The sun comes up. They have their formal uh, legal hearing because they had, you could only try somebody during daybreak. So they, they, they kind of formalize the charges at daybreak, and they quickly whisk them over to Pilate. And as Pilate asks him the question, we see that they, they shift the charge under Jewish law from blasphemy to that Jesus is an insurrectionist against Rome. Because that's what Pilate asked him. Are, is it true? Are you saying you're the king of the Jews? And so we, the whole tension that we looked at, I think it was two weeks ago, they, or maybe it was last, no, last week was Peter. And, and so the, Pilate is trying to get out of crucifying Jesus. He sees that he's innocent. He sees that it's only because of their jealousy. He has the authority to get Jesus off, yet he refuses to do the right thing. And so they scourge Jesus. And the scourging, when we went over that, so this would be a whip that had a bunch of leather strips coming out at the end of the strip. There would be bone shards. There would be metal pieces. As they would hit the individual, whatever force they used, it would take more force to pull it out because all of those those pieces would would stick into the flesh. And so when they pulled it out, chunks of flesh would come out. Josephus writes about the one crucifixion that he witnessed and the guy's bowels came out of his stomach. The back would be torn out. Eyes would be lost. Horrific is an understatement. And so we pick up the story here, verse 21. They have to press into service this passerby. So as the individual is walking towards the place of crucifixion, they would have the post set up. The person would carry the crossbeam. On the crossbeam, the charges would be written. On Jesus' crossbeam, it said, the king of the Jews. Whatever the individual did, it would be written. And this was Rome's way of placing their, uh, their wrath on the individual. You would have to carry the tool that would be used for your execution to the place of execution. And on it, it would say all of your crimes. So in effect, you're saying, I am guilty. Rome is right. I believe this, and I'm carrying this piece of wood to the place where they're going to use this piece of wood to to take my life. Jesus is so beaten from the flogging. I'm so jealous of you right now, sitting down, (laughs) 
that's how I like to do Bible study. <laughs> Class, you can go to the floor if you'd like to. 46 years of this, huh? This 41. 41. <laughs> We're not being recorded. Oh, I am being recorded, so this is good. This is a column out in public. Um, where were we, class? I um, So Jesus' body is so beaten, so in shock, so traumatized that he can't even carry the crossbeam. And this individual is pressed into service. I, I love, like, the passion of the Christ, it does such a, for all, like, all the criticisms, they does such a masterful job of, of piecing this together. And I just remember that scene of, like, this guy, like, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, this is a... And then he gets forced by the Roman soldiers to carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. And as I read this, this, this whole story of crucifixion all week, these two little phrases have been in my mind all, all week. I can't, I can't shake them. Because like, what's the purpose? Why is this happening? This is so horrific. And all I hear is, is that line, this was my thinking all, all week. I know who it is now because I Googled it last night. But I've had the line, you did it for me, you did it for love. Those, I just keep hearing that in my head as I study. I had no idea that it was a, I knew it was a song, but Phil Wickham, because of your love, I had no idea we were singing it today. Last night when Christina sent me the little, like, the little clip of Robert doing the greeting for us, when I put it into the program, I'm like, hey, because of your, hey, that's that song I've had in my week. And it's like, just how the Spirit of God works sometimes that we would sing that song and my not knowing, like I literally preached this sermon before I knew that song was there. And so as we go through this, and it'll be intertwined, I just, as I read about the crucifixion, because you did it for me, you did it for love. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of the school. And if you go to Jerusalem today, one of the places that you'll visit, you'll go to the garden tomb. And the garden tomb when you go to the Garden Tomb, to the right, it's owned by the YMCA. They do the tours. It's still very uh, Christian and uh, how they do things. But you'll go over to the right, and over on the right, there's like a bench, and then there's a rail, and you look at, over at the rail, and what do you see? A bus stop. If this was an Escondido, it would be, we would have this, this tourist site set up down by the by the transit center of Escondido, which I don't know of anybody that goes to the transit center in Escondido as like a, a, a tourist highlight. You go, this is fascinating. This is a bus stop. There's 50 buses there. There's a gate where people come and go. I can smell the garbage of the trash, of all of the dumpsters of trash there. And the reason you look this, because on the left, there's a cliff. And on that cliff, the, the impressions of the, the, the stone wall, it makes a skull. Clear as day, you can see the skull. Now it's a little awkward. There, about five years ago, there was a snowstorm, and the nose popped off after all the thousands of years. But I saw it when the nose was on, and then after the nose was off. But you can still make it out. This is where they would have done the crucifixions. It wasn't on a hillside far away. They would have done the crucifixions right there in the place where people came and left the city, that as you walked into Jerusalem, the people would be crucified, not like in the beautiful pictures we have where they're like way elevated up like a flagpole, eight feet, like almost eye level right here. So you could see them dying over the course of three days. You could read their crimes 
And it was a sobering reminder that as you enter into our city, if you do things like this, this will be your outcome. And so as Jesus is there, they bring him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of the school, verse 23. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus would not allow him them to dull his pain of what he's about to endure. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Mark doesn't point it out, but in doing this, they fulfilled prophecy of what was to be done to the Messiah. It was the third hour, which is 9 a.m., when they crucified him. I, uh, this, this week, I, I wanted to see if I could find some like, extra-biblical or non-Christian sort of uh, description of what crucifixion was. And in all places, a number of years ago, Forbes magazine had an article depicting what crucifixion was like during Roman times. And this is what the article said. The author was Michael Shields. And he writes, the nailing of the cross was not through the hands, but between the two bones below the wrists. So like right there. So that the wrist bones could bear the entire weight of the body on the cross. DeRay explains, having a nail driven through there would feel like lightning going through your middle and ring fingers. Funny bone. I didn't know why they called it the funny bone, but Don Fredericks educated me. Do you guys know why they called it the funny bone? Yeah. This is well played, whoever came up with that. But you're humorous. This is the humorous bone. And so because humorous is humorous, so the nerve that connects, they'd call it the funny bone. There's nothing funny about the funny bone. During the lockdown, I was doing something, and I had a ratchet. And I ratcheted it. It broke free, and my elbow hit like a steel beam, like... It was two steel parts that made the perfect 90-degree angle, and I hit it. It hurt so, like, like I did it, and it was the, like, my whole arm felt paralyzed. And as I'm going down, going, oh, no, am I going to have to go to the hospital, like, self-evaluating? Is there blood gushing? I could see grace. And there's a policy in my family. Anna hates it. (laughs) So she's here, so I can't look over this way. Yeah. So if somebody in the family is hurt, but they don't need medical attention, it's okay to laugh. They're, they're, it's so, like there's something about somebody you love who that is hurt, but isn't really hurt, that just makes me laugh for years. And so my policy is, as long as the person doesn't need medical attention, it's okay, just let it out, like laugh. And so there I am. I think I have a metal beam through my elbow. I can't move my hand. I can't feel from my, from my shoulder to my fingertips. I'm just, oh, yes. I mean, just thinking about it makes tears come to my eyes. And I'm trying to feel if there's metal. I'm trying to feel if there's blood. And I'm going, this is so, this is so bad. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see Grace, like, with tears laughing. And I'm like, stop it. It's not funny. No, honey, it's okay. It's really funny. I'm, I'm not going to the hospital. You can keep laughing. But stop. It hurts so bad. This, it, she is, like, dying during the second service. She can even hold together. She's like, oh, it's so, it was so good. Like, it hurts right now thinking about it. But you know that feeling when you really zap your funny bone. It, I, I, oh, Horrific. Back to the story here. Where was I? 
Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Lightning going through your middle ring fingers. He goes on. It was brilliantly placed because it wouldn't hit any major blood vessels, but it would hit the median nerve, which would cause a seizure of those fingers and make the hands flex down in excruciating contracture. So excruciating, this word we get from crucifixion. They would not be able to relax. So as they hit this, it would be like your funny bone on steroids through your whole body that you couldn't control it because the nerve would cause it to flex. Darius says a similar strategy was applied to the nailing of the feet. They would nail the feet to the cross between the second and third metatarsal so that the body weight could be held up on the massive bones of the feet. Believe it or not, the survival instinct would need those nailed feet for leverage while on the cross, according to Darai. The most horrific part is that when you naturally take a deep breath, you pull the muscles of your diaphragm down. In other words, you actively breathe in and you passively exhale. So everybody can inhale right now. We can. When you inhale, there's a diaphragm that holds all your guts up kind of thing. And so you, when, you're, when that pushes down, what it does is it draws air into your lungs. And then when you exhale, there's no work that is done to exhale. It just happens naturally. It's a, it's a passive thing. So when you breathe, the work happens on the inhale, and on the exhale, it happens naturally. However, with crucifixion, it's exactly the opposite. But when you're left hanging on a cross... Your arms are outstretched so that you actually inhale very easily, but you have to work hard in order to get the air out of your lungs. You'd have to pull or push your body up in order to expel the air. You would have to work very hard to get the air out of your lungs. Breathing actually kills you because you cannot get the air out of your chest. So now think about this. We've already talked about the scourging. We've talked about his garments, which they divided up. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and in the Catholic Church, there's always the, the crucifix up there with Jesus' body there, but they always put a little loincloth to tone it down. The, the reality is he was in the buff. There was nothing, totally exposed. Totally, it's the most shameful form of punishment that you could possibly get, and they'd been scourging him. So his flesh pulled off of his body, open wounds on his back, on his front, on his face, everywhere. And now he's on this cross, forcing air into the lungs. And if you wanted to get a breath or to get the air out of your lungs so that you can recycle the air in your lungs, you had to either press up on the nail on your feet or you had to pull from your arms that are, have the funny bone situation going on in order to get the air out. And so the, the cause of death and crucifixion was suffocation. Is that eventually the individual over the course of two or three days would no longer have the energy and strength to, to pull themselves up to get the, their air out of their lungs and they would suffocate. We know the story. Mark doesn't go into it in his account, but remember it's a holiday. They want to get to their celebration of the Passover. They need to speed things up. And so what do they do to the two other soldiers? They take a crowbar or whatever, and they snap the guy's legs so that they go down, so that they can no longer stand up in order to get the air out. They didn't need to do this to Jesus, fulfilling yet another prophecy. They see that he's dead. They were professional executioners, and they basically took a spear, and they poked Jesus' side. The lungs had already filled up with water and blood, and that basically comes gushing out. 
Verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So they'd all heard about Jesus' claims, that what they understood as tearing down this temple that they'd spent 46 years building. And so they're walking by. The, remember, this isn't like they're up far away. This is like they're right there. They can look in his eyes. They can see him. They can communicate. They can communicate back. And they're saying, you said you're going to do all this stuff in three days. Why don't you just save yourself from the cross and come on down? Mocking him, ridiculing him, hurling abuse is what the text says. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, or what they would say in Hebrew, was this Messiah. Remember the charge that they really charged him with, that he claimed to be the Messiah. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. They wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. There's, there's nothing sincere about this. They're just mocking him. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. The, the two individuals on his left and right were, were hurling insults from other accounts. We know that one through this period began to soften as he saw Jesus' reaction. Where by the end of it, he looks at the other criminal, he says, we both deserve to be up here dying. This man has done nothing wrong. And by the end of the account, Jesus looks at that guy and says, today you will see me in paradise. And so Jesus leads one of these guys on the cross to salvation, which is a beautiful thing. Verse 33, when the sixth hour, that's 12 p.m. came, so Jesus is now on the cross from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. So a three-hour window. This word darkness is a word where we get the word eclipse from, like a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse. I don't know if you guys remember last year. I, uh, you know, I'm pretty transparent with everybody. For the last couple of years, we've been hearing about blood oranges. No, no, blood moons, blood this, super moons, super Tuesdays, taco Tuesdays, like all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, all this stuff, I don't care. Like, I just, I just don't care. And then last, no offense if you care. Like, I, I do like taco Tuesdays. So don't, like, I do don't, uh, I don't want to go too crazy in my just burning stuff out of my mouth. Uh, um, but there was going to be a solar eclipse. And I'm like, solar eclipse, whatever. Like, who cares? And then, then the time came, and I happened to be at home, and I happened to be with the family, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And it's like, oh, like, oh well, she wanted to educate the kids about an eclipse. You know? <laughs> like, and so she's going to go run out and show the solar eclipse, and I'm like, I guess I'll go out and see the solar eclipse. Like, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be lame. It's not... And we go out there, and it was like a cloud passed over the sun, and it got dark, and there was no cloud. 
And it was actually a little bit terrifying. It was like, this is really weird. And it ended up being way cooler than I like. Education was cool, you know, like this is like, I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was like, it was a very surreal experience. Now, this isn't saying that there was a solar eclipse. This is a word that we get that word from. And so supernaturally, the sun got dark for three hours. Um, there are outside sources of the Bible. There are historians from that area who document in, in regions, not just in Jerusalem, but the surrounding area that document that the, that the sun went dark all of a sudden for a couple hours on this day. But can you imagine the terror of the people that were there? Like, all of a sudden, darkness happens. And then we're told at the, at the end of this, at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani. I think I said that right, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elisha. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put, her, put it on a reed and, and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And, and there seems to be some shifting in their perception of him. Like, I, it's hard to know what they're thinking, but clearly the events surrounding him and how he's dying, it's very different. And then we're told in verse 7, then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And we're told at this moment that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I forget the exact stats on this, but it's something like 70 feet tall, this huge veil. And it's not like a sheet that you put on your bed. It was believed to be three inches thick. Like this is a massive thing. And we're told that, that as this happened, other places there's like this earthquake and this veil is torn to two. So it's split in half which was a, a guard between the temple and into the holiest of holies that only the high priest once a year could go in there briefly. And, we're, you know, it's not in the scripture, but it's like his, history tells us that these guys would, like, put bells on them. They'd put a rope around them. They'd go in there, and if he dropped dead from being in the presence of God, they'd, nobody had to go rescue him. They could just pull him out. Suddenly, in this moment of Jesus' death, as they were slaughtering these lambs for the sacrifice, this earthquake happens, this veil is torn in two, and it's overwhelming. This is what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10, 19 through 25. The significance of this event. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the holiest of holies. We have confidence to enter through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So this old system of doing business, this, this, this barrier to the holiest of holies is now done away with as Jesus died through his flesh. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another. This word for stimulate, it's not a gentle, this isn't gentle. It, it would be better translated, I think, as like agitate one another. It's, it's, it's the picture of um, 
for those of you who have served in sort of military law enforcement or something where, where there's like a gunfight or you've seen movies where, where an individual is losing hope and they want to quit or a sports event or something, you know, where they, they've given up hope, they're going to quit, they're not going to go on. And another individual comes alongside and basically smacks them across the face and rattles them and says, you've got to keep going on. Our lives count on this. Pull it together, man. And then they're able to go. That's the picture of this word. It's, it's We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, because of what Christ did on the cross, we have an obligation to hold each other accountable to to rattle us. Like you see your brother and sister and sin in love, you're to challenge them and to wake them up. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. This is essential what we're doing here, the gathering of the body of Christ together. Let us not forsake our assembling together. The world thinks what we're doing is crazy. Why? like outside of the whole coronavirus before I became a Christian, it's like, why would you waste an hour of your weekend going to church? Like, she, you're with me. You it's like, like, what are you thinking? Like this whole week I've been laughing, like four months ago as a kid, this would have been heaven. No church. My dad's not going to force me to go to church. And then this week, no singing. That hallelujah. Like, Yesterday, when I came home after recording this sermon, I told Anna, I said, you know what? I finished the sermon, and I sang that song, uh, Doxology. She's like, you did what? I'm like, yeah. I'm like just kidding. I like to like the courage to see. I'm not even sure that what I do qualifies as singing, so I might be safe. I, like, you guys might be in trouble, but I'm good. But, like... Like, I hated going to church. The one thing I did like is that my dad, well, I hated that he would wake us up so early, but in the Catholic church, I don't know if it's still true today, but back then, you could go to the early service, and they did away with all the music, so you didn't have to go to the... So when I was a kid, the concession that my dad gave me was I had to go to church, but we could go to the one service where there wasn't singing. Now, I like you take away my ability to go to church. I'm like, oh, I just want to go to church. Can't sing. I uh, try to stop me. This this isn't just something that we do. Like the Bible commands us, not forsaking our assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Over the last four months, I have I can't tell you how many times I've heard the question: Are we in the end times? Is this it? My answer is always: I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know. I do know that we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And regardless of if this is the end times or there's another thousand years to go, it doesn't affect anything that I'm doing. I should be living my life the same way. And we're told in Hebrews that we're to go on keeping our eyes on Christ, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, regardless if there's a coronavirus, regardless if, like, whatever is going on. Like, what, like I'm not going to guess what the next thing is because 2020 has already been... Who knows? But so as all of this happens, back to the text, the veil is torn in two. It's darkness. He's dead. Now we're introduced to the centurion. Verse 39, the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. 
This guy was not a soft man. This is a centurion. This is a seasoned officer. This is a man who is there through the whole process, participating in the execution of Jesus. During my time in Valley Center, one of the things that I have, well, there's a whole lot of things I've come to love about living in this town. Some of them are surprising. Some of them are like, oh, I never, you know. I've learned that meat comes from animals living in Valley Center. Uh, a few years ago, the Fredericks family invited me over, and I jumped on it like a hobo on a ham sandwich. They said, our pig is getting executed. I think there's a more, proce- no, they said processed. Our pig is getting processed today. Would you like to go watch? And I said, yes. <laughs> like, I, I want to see where my bacon comes from. Like, you, know, you go over to the Frederick's house, and like, you, they've invited us over for a meal, and the kids are like, who are we eating today, Mom? Like, it's like, awesome. It's like, it's country living at its finest. And so we go over there, and this guy, who I forget his name, but I would be like, if I had, like, if it was my job to go execute a pig right now, I'd be like, okay, I can do this. Okay. Like, try to do it in a way that, that you know, that it just goes quickly. And this guy that, you know, process the meat. It's like clearly a guy was not phased by ending the pig's life, putting him up, and then he's talking through. It was fascinating. I mean, he pulled out the lungs. He's blowing out the lungs. He pulled out the eye, and he puts it behind him and says, okay, kids, I'm watching you. Right? Keep, I, my eye is on you is what he said. This guy was not phased by executing an animal. I told you guys, it's for service. <laughs> this is like, so this centurion, this is not a man that would be phased at all by killing yet one more person. Who knows how many people this man has killed in his lifetime under the authority of Rome. But something was different in this execution. We don't know how far along. I think it's reasonable to think that this centurion was there for the full process, that he was back in the praetorium, that he was there spitting on him, slapping him or overseeing it watching him to his place of execution, watching him on the cross, watching him interact with the two guys, watching him interact with the apostle John and his mother. The sayings of the cross, Father, I forgive them for they know not what they do, and you can go on and see all of the sayings. But at the end of it, this, who I don't believe was a religious man when this started, by Jesus' death, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amazing. Verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. Then he gives some commentary, some background of these women. And Mark says, when he was in Galilee, Jesus, they, these women, used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That last phrase, there were many other women has stood out to me all week. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I get the question, well, what do you think about women? What do you mean what do you think about women? I think they're great. I married one. I, gave, I didn't give birth to two of them, but I have two of them. And like, I, like what do you mean? And I'll never forget a few years ago, uh, it just, it, it, it dawned on, like, Lindsey Gray, the female pilot that we support who flies into war-torn countries, she was here and she spoke like during the beginning. And this lady came up and asked me the question, what do you think about women with tears in her eyes? I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, well, the church is just so cruel to women. And I'm like, 
lady, you just, I didn't say that. This is just me between us with our hair down. I'm like, you just heard this like 25-year-old girl who lives in Nairobi and is flying into Sudan and all these war-torn countries share about the ministry that we're partnered with. She's doing more for Christ than I've done. Like, like we support her, we encourage Like, And then I never saw the lady again. And there's this, there's this false narrative that somehow Christianity has underscored, or like not underscored, Christianity has made women insignificant, but the exact opposite is true. Women had no role here. And, and embedded in the gospel story, Mark says, there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus has this whole band of female disciples who are ministering to him, caring for him, that Christianity has done more for women liberty than any other organization or any, uh, like anything. I, I wish I had some stat to throw out to you, but I just know that to be true. They were, the, they were there at the cross. They were there at the resurrection, the first to see him, and it's beautiful. Verse 42, when evening had already come because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, I'm like way over. This is like preparation day. So this is a high holy day. Um, our calendar is very different than the Jewish calendar. If you start in Genesis, you'll see it was nighttime and then it was daytime. They view their day as beginning at sunset. And so Saturday for them begins Friday afternoon for us. So their day goes from Friday afternoon to Saturday. That's a day. So when you're in Jerusalem and it's a Sabbath, the Sabbath, or any Jewish where you go, it would be the Saturday begins Friday afternoon. And on the Passover, it's considered a high holy day, so they would tack in another day, and it would go from a three-day weekend to a four-day weekend, and they would give a whole day to prepare for the big holiday. And so this is where the big debate or discussion amongst Christians, was Jesus crucified on Friday afternoon, or was he crucified on Thursday afternoon? Uh, the holiday that we celebrate, Good Friday, makes a hard case for those that hold to a Thursday. I hold to a Thursday. It doesn't really matter. But this is part of one of the discussion points that comes up. We're told that it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. This is a huge holiday. And Jesus is now dead. And we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, this this man who was a prominent member of the council. He was wealthy. He was of importance. I have so many questions about him. Was he there during this, this trial in the middle of the night? Was he trying to voice his opinion to defend Jesus, but it was just quelched in, the, in the, the mob mentality. We don't know. But we see in this verse that he does what Pilate doesn't have the courage to do. He has the courage to do the right thing, and doing the right thing almost always is the most difficult thing to do. Doing the wrong thing is almost always easier to do in the moment. And so this man of great wealth, great reputation, that was a, a, a part of the people who crucified Jesus, he recognizes that Jesus isn't guilty. And we're told that Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. His heart was sincere. Be careful when you start labeling all Pharisees and Sadducees as guys who didn't love God. Paul identified as a Pharisee until the day he died in the present tense. 
And this guy was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up the courage because he knew that what he was about to do was going to place him as an outsider amongst his peers. He was going to be criticized for what he did. Jesus was not from Jerusalem. He didn't have family there. This man did. He has a very expensive tomb that has never been used and could be used for burial. And so he steps forward, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus so that he could take his body and give him a proper burial in this tomb that was his family's tomb that would have been very, very expensive. Again, Mark doesn't point it out, but this is yet again that is fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. And so now, verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. He didn't know. It takes a couple days for people to die. And so Pilate is like, I don't even know if he's dead. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And so Joseph bought a linen cloth. He took him down. He wrapped him in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And this, this act of grace and love is beautiful. Um, at the Holocaust Museum in Israel a few years ago, there's a statue of a guy with a bunch of little kids underneath him. And, and I forget this guy's name. He wasn't Jewish, but he, was the, he, he spared kids from going to the, the Holocaust. And it's, it's a powerful monument. But over his arms, people have stuck rocks all on his arms. And, and I remember asking Guy, like, hey, what's the deal with, with the rocks? And Guy looked at me and he said, you know, in, in Israel, I don't know if he said it, for, it amongst Jews or amongst Israel, he says that the greatest form of grace that you can give to somebody is that you can bury them. Because it's a gift that you can give them that they can never pay you back for. And so when we Jews come to these memorials, we want to participate in their burial. And so we'll place rocks on the statues saying that we were there to help bury you. And so when I look at this picture, what Joseph did to the, the body of Jesus, what nobody else would do, like if he didn't do this, where would Jesus' body have ended up? In the dump somewhere? Like I, but so he takes him down, and he displays this grace, and he takes it to this tomb, and we're told in verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph were looking there to see where he was laid, and they would see the risen Christ. And I look at this story, and all I hear is he did it for me, and he did it for love. We sang the words, I'm going to read them now, as we get ready to take communion, you can start opening your cups because it takes a while. Be careful because they squirt out like juice cups from little kids' drinks. But in this song that we sang, the words are beautiful. Jesus, you endured my pain. Savior, you bore all my shame. All because of your love. Maker of the universe. Broken for the sins of the earth. All because of your love. Innocent and holy king, you died to set the captive free. Lord, you gave your life for me, so I will live my life for you, all because of your love. You did it for me. You did it for love. It's your victory. Jesus, you are enough. Because of your love, I live. The apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. Concerning the cross of Christ, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Father, we have returned. Father, I confess the many years that I ran from you. And now, Lord, I come to you asking that you would continue to help me to run towards you, the guardian of my soul. Father, as we take communion this day after reading about uh, the death of Christ, we hold this cracker in our hands, which is symbolic of his body that was broken for us. That the wrath of the Father was placed upon him that was there because of our sin our iniquity, and he took it all. He absorbed it in full. The juice is significant for the the new covenant. This was a once and for all sacrifice. No longer is there a need for animals to be sacrificed over and over and over again. This act on the cross, it was once and for all that my sins have been paid for. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this truth. We hear the lies of saying, say, no, you're not worthy. Father, I pray that you would help us to push back and say, you're right, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy of this. But it's because of his grace that he did this for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There is nothing we can do to keep our salvation. It's by his grace and his work on the cross. Father, I pray that as we take communion today that you would help us to understand grace clearly, that we would walk in grace, as Romans 5.1 talks about, that we would live in grace, that we just would be a body of believers that is gracious to all people, understanding that Christ did for us what we cannot do. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in his good name. Amen.